Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a couple days before the new year, the last few days of 2006, and what you're about to hear is a a class I taught at Loyola Marymount University, an extension class titled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. This is class number three, part one. It deals mostly with meditation. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. So, with no further introduction, Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life, class three, part one. Mindfulness is goalless awareness. In mindfulness, one does not strain for results. One does not try to accomplish anything. When one is mindful, one experiences reality in the present moment in whatever form it takes. There is nothing to be achieved. There is only observation. Mindfulness is awareness of change. It is observing the passing flow of experience. It is watching things as they are changing. It is seeing the birth, growth, and maturity of all phenomena. It is watching phenomena decay and die. Mindfulness is watching things moment by moment, continuously. It is observing all phenomena, physical, mental, or emotional. Whatever is present and taking place in the mind, one just sits back and watches the show. Mindfulness is the observance of the basic nature of each passing phenomena. It is watching the thing arising and passing away. It is seeing how that thing makes us feel and how we react to it. It is observing how it affects others. In mindfulness, one is an unbiased observer whose sole job is to keep track of the constantly passing show of the universe within. Please note this last point. In mindfulness, one watches the universe within. The meditator who is developing mindfulness is not concerned with the external universe. It is there, but in meditation, one's field of study is one's own experience, one's thoughts, one's feeling, and one's perceptions. In meditation, one is one's own laboratory. The universe within has an enormous fund of information containing the reflection of the external world, and much more. Mindfulness. Now, it, can, can, it goes on. Mindfulness is. But the, do you get a feeling of what mindfulness is now? It's just raw, simple awareness. Yes? When you were talking about the, the, sample, the example of the second grade teacher, I didn't get that. Okay. Let's go back to the second that, grade teacher. That, I think it's very Yes, it's actually in three parts. Uh, Lyric? Priscilla. Priscilla. Okay, I'm going to get it yet, one day. Okay, Priscilla. Uh, We are reading from um, Mindfulness in Plain English, which is available on the website. And, um, okay, second grade teacher. If you are remembering your second grade teacher, that is memory. When you become aware that you are remembering, that is mindfulness. If you then conceptualize the process and say to yourself, oh, 
I am remembering that is thinking. I understand the difference between remembering and then being aware of remembering. Okay, a remembering is simply a process, and there is an awareness of the process occurring that you are not remembering. Remembering is occurring. There is a separation of you from your mental process. And that's, that's the key. How do we get to that place of simple observer? And not have to be the memory, or not have to be the thinking of the memory, but simply be the awareness of the memory, and the awareness of the thinking, but not being the thinking. That's the deal. That's the place we're going to sort of go after. We're going to try to get there. To simply be choiceless awareness. And the process of mind and body will continue without us being in charge. Because that's its job. Choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness. Um, Suzuki Roshi's term. Zen mind, beginner's mind. Choiceless awareness. Being aware without choices, preferences, criticisms, or possibilities. Simply being aware. And most of us are aware because we want something. We either want to get it or we want to avoid it. That's where our awareness seems to go most of the time. But this is being aware and not wanting anything and not wanting to get rid of anything. This is simply being aware. This is what Goldstein says. Play, this is what? Yes, that's the, that's the place. That's the place. No clinging, no condemning. That's the place. Everything is just the way it's supposed to be. But it's not neutral. It's more than neutral. It's equanimity. Yeah, the, there's, there's, there's indifference and there's equanimity. And sometimes neutral is more indifferent than equanimous. So we're, we're, and I've often thought that, that equanimity is spiritual indifference. And, and, but we have to be really careful because indifference is the enemy of equanimity. If we're indifferent about ourselves, we can simply not eat and die. But if we have equanimity about ourselves, we eat simply to stay alive. So this indifference and this equanimity, is, there's a subtle difference. And uh, we need to be clear on that. So this is even more than neutral. It's equanimity. It's having perfect balance about everything that's occurring. No choices, no preferences. Okay, so that's, that's sort of just a little introduction to mindfulness. But we're not going to practice mindfulness tonight. We're going to practice concentration. Because concentration is needed to be able to practice mindfulness. And that's exactly what the Buddha did. He practiced concentration first, and then he went into mindfulness. Now, one of the problems I found in my own practice, which I will talk about at great length after I finish reading these next few pages, is that I got into mindfulness a little too soon. And I was just like you, sitting on the floor, hearing the cars going by, and the helicopters going overhead, and the planes landing and taking off. And I'm thinking, how can I meditate? Because I got in such a sensitive place that I became aware of more and more and more and more. 
and wasn't able to have choiceless awareness about it. I was angry. If only this stuff wasn't here, then I could meditate. And I became aware of so many more things that I hadn't noticed before. And, and little things that people do that I had not even seen started to irritate me. And just the sound of certain voices started to make me angry and filled with hatred. And then I started to criticize and be judgmental of everything in my life, including me. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse because I kept seeing more and more and more. And I said to myself, I'm not going to do mindfulness meditation. This is driving me nuts. I'm a worse person now than I've ever been in my whole life because I'm now aware, really, of how screwed up the world is. And I don't like it. So I went back to concentration. And I found happiness and bliss and rapture. And I was able to surround myself in a cocoon of bliss and rapture. And all that information would still come streaming in, but it would get stuck in my cocoon of bliss and rapture like a big jello, and it would sort of slow down. And now I was able to integrate all the information because it was coming at a, a much slower pace, and each one of those bits of information was encapsulated in bliss and rapture and happiness and joy. And so they weren't bitter pills any longer. As my concentration deepened and I was able to then look at the world in a more realistic way, I wasn't as affected because my primary practice was concentration. And I'll go into what I do now. But, okay, so this is chapter 14, page 155, when you get your book or go online. Mindfulness versus concentration. Vipassana meditation is something of a mental balancing act. You are going to be cultivating two separate qualities of the mind, mindfulness, and concentration. Ideally, these two work together as a team. They pull in tandem, so to speak. Therefore, it is important to cultivate them side by side and in a balanced manner. If one of the factors is strengthened at the expense of the other, the balance of the mind is lost, and meditation is impossible. Concentration and mindfulness are distinctly different functions. They each have their role to play in meditation, and the relationship between them is definite and delicate. Concentration is often called one-pointedness of mind. It consists of forcing the mind to remain on one static point. Please note the word force. Concentration is pretty much a forced type of activity. It can be developed by force, by sheer, unremitting willpower. And once developed, it retains some of that forced flavor. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is a delicate function leading to refined sensibilities. These two are partners in the job of meditation. Mindfulness is the sensitive one. He notices things. Concentration provides the power. He keeps the attention pinned down to one item. Ideally, mindfulness is in this relationship. Mindfulness picks the objects of attention and notices them when the attention has gone astray. Concentration does the actual work of holding the attention steady on that chosen object. 
If either of these partners is weak, your meditation goes astray. Concentration could be defined as that faculty of the mind which focuses single-mindedly on one object without interruption. It must be emphasized that true concentration is a wholesome one-pointedness of mind. That is, the state is free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Unwholesome one-pointedness is also possible, but it will not lead to liberation. You can be very single-minded in a state of lust, but that does not get you anywhere. Uninterrupted focus on something that you hate does not help you out at all. In fact, such unwholesome concentration is fairly short-lived, even when it is achieved, especially when it is used to harm others. True concentration itself is free from such contaminants. It is a state in which the mind is gathered together and thus gains power and intensity. We might use the analogy of a lens. Parallel waves of sunlight falling on a piece of paper will, not, will do no more than warm the surface. But the same amount of light when focused through a lens falls on a single point and the paper bursts into flames. Concentration is the lens. It produces the burning intensity necessary to see into the deeper reaches of the mind. Mindfulness, on the other hand, selects the object that the lens will focus on and looks through the lens to see what is there. Concentration should be regarded as a tool. Like any tool, it can be used for good or ill. A sharp knife can be used to create a beautiful carving or to harm someone. It is all up to the one who uses the knife. Concentration is similar. Properly used, it can assist you towards liberation, but can also be used in the service of the ego. It can operate in the framework of achievement and competition. You can use concentration to dominate others. You can use it to be selfish. The real problem is that concentration alone will not give you a perspective on yourself. It won't throw light onto the basic problems of selfishness and the nature of suffering. It can be used to dig down deep into psychological states. But even then, the force of egotism won't be understood. Only mindfulness can do that. If mindfulness is not there to look into the lens and see what has been uncovered, then it was all for nothing. Only mindfulness understands. Only mindfulness brings wisdom. Concentration has other limitations, too. Really deep concentration can only take place under certain specific conditions. Buddhists go to a lot of trouble to build meditation halls and monasteries. Their main purpose is to create a physical environment free of distractions in which to learn this skill. No noise, no interruptions. Just as important, however, is the creation of a distraction-free emotional environment. The development of concentration will be blocked by the presence of certain mental states, which we call the five hindrances. They are greed for sensual pleasure, hatred, mental laziness, restlessness, and mental vacillation or skeptical doubt. We have examined these mental states more carefully in Chapter 12. A monastery is a controlled environment where this sort of emotional noise is kept to a minimum. No members of the opposite sex are allowed to live together. 
Therefore, there is less opportunity for lust. No possessions are allowed. Therefore, no ownership squabbles and less chance for greed and for coveting. Another hurdle for concentration should also be mentioned. In really deep concentration, you get so absorbed in the object of concentration that you forget about all the trifles, like your body, for instance, and your identity, and everything around you. Here again, the monastery is a useful convenience. It is nice to know that there is somebody to take care of you by watching over all the mundane matters of food and physical security. Without such assurance, one hesitates to go as deeply into concentration as one might. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is free of all these drawbacks. Mindfulness is not dependent on any such particular circumstances, physical or otherwise. It is a pure noticing factor. Thus, it is free to notice whatever comes up, lust, hatred, or just noise. Mindfulness is not limited by any condition. It exists to some extent in every moment, in every circumstance that arises. Also, mindfulness has no fixed object of focus. It observes change. Thus, it has an unlimited number of objects of attention. It just looks at whatever is passing through the mind and does not categorize. Distractions and interruptions are noticed with the same amount of attention as the formal objects of meditation. In a state of pure mindfulness, your attention just flows along with whatever changes are taking place in the mind. Shift, shift, shift. Now this, now this, now this. Okay, I know it's really boring to listen to somebody read out of a book. So thank you for putting up with that. But... Do you get the feeling now? Do you get the, the sense of what the differences are between concentration and mindfulness? Okay, so one requires a lot of intention on our part. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do concentration. It requires us to forcefully take our mind and stick it on one thing and now hold it there and not let it wiggle away. Not let us talk, not let it talk us into wanting to do something else. And the mind is really good at that. Yes? I've done that, the concentration part where you concentrate on something. The only thing is that I find it eventually turns into mindfulness where I'm watching that thing and I notice how it's, it's a flower, how it grows, the leaves, the number of points to the leaves, the way it's turning, the way it's turning on it. It becomes mindfulness. Well, or it becomes thinking. Because what you just described is thinking. You, you, were, you were seeing leaves, and, and you knew they were leaves. So mindfulness wouldn't, they wouldn't become leaves. Can you look at leaves and not see leaves? Yes. <laughs> Color and form, shape, huh? Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. So, see, that's the mind sort of, you know, getting involved in the process of concentration and deluding you into thinking that you've gone to the next step. Yes. But the mind has just sort of taken over now. That's its job. Its job is to think. And what we want to do for just a few moments is, is put our mind to rest. We want to just let that little guy relax and not have to think about anything so except the one thing we're focusing on. So you do focus on one. Yes. Yes. So let me, let me take you uh, on a journey my journey of meditation and, and where I started and where I've ended up so far.
There is no end to meditation. There is no goal in meditation. The goal in meditation is to meditate. If you can figure out how to meditate every day, you're a meditator. But you never stop meditating. The Buddha has meditated until his last breath. So it's like brushing your teeth, taking baths. It's something when you start, you realize it's just going to be part of your life now, forever and ever. And at some point, it gets to be an important part of your life because if you stop meditating, you sort of revert back a little bit to the way you used to be and now you don't like it anymore because you've grown accustomed to being a bit more aware. You uh, enjoy the synchronicity that comes with a meditation practice. More than likely, you will be able to find a parking place if you need one. That's cool. That happens when you meditate. That's synchronicity. So when I started to meditate, I bought a book, you know, and I started to meditate. And I said to myself, I'm going to count my breath. I like that kind of meditation because I don't need a candle, I don't need a picture, I don't need to remember a a mantra to recite it. All I need to do is breathe. And if I'm not breathing, I don't need to meditate. (laughs) (laughs) So my breath became my object of meditation. And I started with not counting the breath, but simply being aware of the breath, the sensation of breath. But my mind was not disciplined enough to stay with the sensation without counting. Counting allowed me to stay with the sensation of breath. It gave my mind something to do. And I told my mind, I'm going to count from 1 to 10, 10 to 1. 1 to 10, 10 to 1. And now, I had to decide whether I wanted to count the inhalations, the exhalations, or both. And I read something about a samurai warrior who would always wait until his opponent took an in-breath. And that seems to be the weakest time in the breath sequence. So he would do an out-breath at that moment and lunge at his opponent and always win. And I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to count my out-breaths because that's the strongest part of my breath process. That's what I read in the book about the Samurai Warrior. But I started to do that, and a few weeks later I thought to myself, maybe I should change and count the in-breath. Because the out-breath doesn't seem to be doing much for me. The in-breath would probably be a better breath to count. So then I started to do in-breath counting. A few weeks went by, and I decided, well, that's not working either. So I'm going to count both the in-breath and the out-breath. One, two, three, four. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to stay with. And so for a few weeks I did that, but that didn't really have any effect either. (laughs) So I went back to out-breaths. And, and then I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, the idea is that you want to have a consistent breath meditation so you can see the movement of your mind. It allows you to see the movement of your mind. And if you're always changing your object of meditation, you're not seeing your mind, you're seeing the changing of the object of meditation. And so you've defeated the whole purpose of meditating. 
So I said, okay, I'm just going to stick with the out-breath. No matter how I feel about it, whether it's working or not, I'm going to stick right there, and I'm just not going to move off of that. So for two years, I counted the out-breath. Now, you can go to a 10-day meditation retreat and only count your breath for two or three days, and then go into mindfulness training. But it took me two years, literally, of counting my breath to even start to relax my mind. And, and I'm thinking, gosh, this is a really long time to count your breath. Isn't there a more advanced practice I should be doing? Why am I spending so much time in these basics, in this preliminary stuff? I want to go to the next level. I want to see the real stuff. So then I said to myself, okay, I'm going to stop counting, and I'm just going to be aware of the sensation of breath. And if I lose that sensation, I will bring the counting back, and I'll just stick with that until my mind now is reconnected, and then I'll let the counting go, and just be aware of sensation of breath. And then if I get distracted or something happens and I start counting again, bring it back. So even though you walk into a zendo and you see a bunch of people sitting there like they're doing nothing, they're really working hard internally. They're really working hard staying awake, staying focused, staying on their object of meditation. And, and so I did that for a couple of years. So now we're talking four or five years. I started counting my breath, and then I went into just being aware of the sensation of breath. And I had a lot of wonderful experiences. I really learned a lot about myself. I learned that no two breaths are the same. I learned that sometimes when you breathe, it gets so subtle, it's almost like you're not breathing at all. And other times, for no apparent reason, you're like panting as if you've run a marathon. The body just needs, I guess, more oxygen at those moments. And I also understood that sometimes I'm in charge of the breath, but most of the time the breath just does itself. I can override the automatic mechanism in the breath, but only to a certain point. You know, if you try holding your breath and want to die, well, you'll go unconscious and start breathing again. So you only have so much control over your breath. And then I used that and looked at my life, and I only had so much control over my life, just like my breath. So I was making progress, even though it didn't seem like I was making progress, because I was gaining some insights and some skills, and I became much more disciplined in my meditation practice. I became very, very focused. And it was a forceful focus. It did become laser-like. And I was now starting to see some aspects of my subconscious, which was really cool. Now, I wanted to do more of that. And I can remember when I was a teenager, I went to a dentist that used nitrous oxide. Has anybody ever used nitrous oxide at the dentist? Well, he did have Novocaine, but nitrous oxide is laughing gas. So here I am, I was like 15, 16 years old, and he gave me this little like squeeze thing. And he says, if you start to feel anything, just squeeze the thing and, and inhale through your nose, and this is sweet gas. And you just get higher and higher and higher. So I'm squeezing the whole time, you know. I just want to get as high as I can. Didn't feel any pain at all. Love to go to that dentist. But that's sort of how 
I did it. You know, I, I just wanted to see how high I could get. Now that I'm meditating, I wanted to see how much I could see about myself. How deep could I go? How focused could I be? How much power did I have at my disposal? You know, like Frankenstein or something. So I, I'm reading this book, the Vasudhi Maga, the Path of Purification, and it's starting, talking about breath meditation. And now they talk about you have you have the breath. And now you have the counting, so you're using conception to be aware of the sensation of breath. And then you let go of the conceptions, the counting, and now you simply have the sensation of breath. And then the next place to go is the representation of breath. That each and every one of us inside ourselves has a representation of our breathing. It's a conscious representation. And in the Vasudhi Maga, it's sometimes described as cotton balls, fireflies, points of light, lava flows with color. But you have to be able to look inside to find your consciousness, to see how your consciousness is representing the sensation of breath. And I knew of no one who was practicing that kind of meditation. The kind of meditation I'm talking about is jhanic meditation. It's going deeper and deeper and deeper. And everybody was teaching mindfulness because you just sort of like observe stuff. But I didn't want to observe it. I wanted to go blast through my subconscious. I wanted to go as deep as I could. And now I was forced with, into figuring out how to look inside. How do you look inside? How do you look inside? My whole life I'd only looked outside. These eyes only look one way. And they were saying you have to look inside. And I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? And then I came up with a solution. I remembered that when people took pictures of me with a flash cube, that there was an after glow of that. You could close your eyes and actually still see the flash cube. And sometimes the person who was shooting the picture was like in a silhouette with the flash cube. And then it sort of went away. But there was that sort of after image that was left behind. And that after image was not outside. That after image was inside. Well, I thought it would probably be odd if I brought a little camera with me to the Zendo and started taking my picture and closing my eyes, people might think I'm a bit egotistical. So how else could I create something? And then I remember having read that if you squint your eyelids really tight, that these little points of light happen. You know? And I figured that was more subtle than shooting myself in the face with a flash cube. So there I was on the Zendo floor, sitting quietly, squinting. And then I relaxed my eyelids, and I started to see the little points of light. Okay. And then they go away, just like in the flash cube. And so I would squint again, and I'd see the little points of light. And then they go away. But every time I was able to see the little points of light because I was squinting, I was becoming aware of some other stuff, sort of like in the background of the little points of light. I became aware of movement. I became aware of shape and form. I became aware of color. And all that stuff was happening inside. 
And I wasn't taking drugs. I was just squinting my eyes and trying to look really carefully at the points of light and see if anything else was there. And there was a lot of stuff there. Stuff that I had no idea existed. Okay. So now I'm decided to, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to let go of just being aware of sensation of breath. And every time I sit down to count my breath and become aware of sensations, I'm going to squint my eyes a few times and start getting deeper and deeper and deeper into that internal reality that's always there. I found my way to McCabe's guitar store and bought my first harmonica. And I started to practice using the harmonica and I started to use diaphragmic breathing. And I started to see that that kind of breathing using the diaphragm and just tensing the abdominal muscles a bit caused me to be able to focus even more. And it wasn't until much later that I found a book that talked about it specifically. It's called Bamboo Breathing. And it's done in some of the Zen monasteries in Japan. And it's a, it's a use of the diaphragm and the abdominal muscles to create a tension. And that allows you to focus and be even more concentrated. So now, besides squinting my eyes, I was sort of And I'm just going like deeper and deeper and having these wonderful feelings of ecstasy and bliss and rapture. And I'd walk out of the Zendo and I'd just be like, oh man, you know, I was just exhausted. Because physically and mentally I was really focused. Every ounce of energy was focused on going deeper and deeper. And all those feelings of bliss and rapture and happiness were getting stronger and stronger, but they were taking their toll on me. Because physically, it was a demanding practice. And emotionally, it was fascinating because I was becoming aware of aspects of my consciousness that I had no idea of. And I was creating this sort of energy flow with the diaphragmic breathing and the focus and the concentration. And I had this all this energy after the initial uh. And sometimes it was hard to get rid of the energy. Sometimes I couldn't go to sleep very well. Because I'd just be sort of buzzed from all this meditation. You know, and it's okay. But if you only get two, three hours of sleep, you never really feel comfortable or relaxed or rested but you're investigating. And then occasionally some supranormal stuff would happen that would get me when I was just like in a normal environment like at work or going to work or speaking to people. And I'd go, damn. You know, what they said in early Buddhism was true. This kind of meditation, this kind of deep concentration allows you to become aware of some of the things that you never thought you'd be ever be aware of. Okay, 10 years, starting with counting the breath, watching the breath, finding the representation of breath inside. But now I needed to go to the, the next place. I, I just sort of explored that as much as I wanted to explore. I, I'd had enough experiences that I realized that it it wouldn't be very helpful and it wouldn't be very useful to continue that kind of meditation. But I wanted to go and do the most sophisticated kind of meditation I could find. 
I wanted to finally end up at a place that I could say, now I am doing the kind of meditation that the Buddha did, and that the monks, the Zen priests, the nuns did. What's the most advanced form of meditation that I could do? And I got some books. I went to the library. I went to Bodhi Tree Bookstore. I started to read. I started to rethink my direction in my meditation practice. And I figured it out. I found it. And that's the kind of meditation I do today. So I don't count my breath today. I don't make fireflies or points of light happen in my head anymore. I don't have great surges of bliss and rapture. I've left all that behind. Now I simply sit. That's all I do. I make myself into a transparent pane of glass. And everything just sort of flows right through me. If I hear a sound, it's just my eardrum vibrating. I don't objectify it. It's neither outside nor inside. If I have sore knees, it's simply a strong sensation. There is no time. There is no space. It's just pure awareness of what's happening in the present moment. It's like being in a river, the flow... And in this river, you have a couple branches hanging over, and you've got a boulder here, and you have a log there. And the natural tendency of the mind, as it goes down the river, is to sort of hold on to the branches, get stuck in the log, climb up on the rock. But this kind of meditation, this mindfulness meditation, simply being mindful of everything that's happening without objectifying it, without being it, without being connected to it in a drama or a story, allows you to just flow. And you see the branches and you just flow. And there's some clinging sometimes that happens and you have to let it go. And aversion might arise... And you have to let it go. I find that my technique now is just to keep letting go. Just keep relaxing into each moment. Relaxing into each moment. And as new stuff comes up, it might be mental images. It might be thought patterns. It might be discursive thought. It could be stories. Let it go. Let it go. Relax. Relax. It arises. It exists. It passes away. It arises, it exists, it passes away. Now what happens when you take that into the world? It arises, it exists, it passes away. There's no reason to cling and hold on to. You can use the stuff, but you'll never own the stuff. You can't hide from it either. No place to hide in this kind of meditation. So you have to look at it directly. It reminds me of a family. And so say we have some brothers and sisters, and they're just rascals, these brothers and sisters. They're always giving us a hard time. But because they're in our life every day, we've sort of grown grown used to it, and it's not much of a problem. But once a year, the uncle comes to visit. And this guy's a jerk. And everybody is always uptight before the visit. And now we're best behavior while the uncle's there, and then he leaves. 
But if that uncle could come every week or every day, we too could get used to the uncle being the way he is. And sometimes we have these thoughts, these past experiences that arise that just cause us to tense up and sort of go, oh, that again. And this kind of meditation allows us to look directly at that and now start to create a relationship with that. So it's not a problem. It's just that again. And Ram Das used to say in some of his talks, he said, you know, I'm still neurotic after all my years of meditation. And my neuroses would arise and I'd say, my, my, I haven't seen you in a long time. How are you? So he was creating a new relationship with his little stuff. And we all have our little stuff, and this allows us to create a new relationship with our stuff. We can't get rid of the stuff. We can't deny the stuff. But we can embrace it and look at it for what it really is. And what is that stuff? It's just the mind thinking. Emotions happening. Those are the ghosts of our past lives. The ghosts of our past lives. We need to bury them. We need to have a memorial service for them. All the times we've been created and destroyed in just this one lifetime. And all those experiences. How many times have we done a memorial service for the 10-year-old boy or girl we used to be? And put them to peace. Put them to rest. And say, thank you for existing because... You existed, I'm here today, but you're dead. And all that stuff you did or didn't do are just the ghosts of a past life. The important thing is what we're doing and saying and thinking today in this very moment. It's just realizing that. And this practice, starting off with concentration, evolving into mindfulness allows us to simply be aware of everything in a non-judgmental way. Choiceless awareness. So I am not encouraging you to take the path I've taken. But you could tell by my dentist story that I'm prone to excess. And I like to go as far as I can go. Buddhism has taught me, though, that the middle is the best place to be. So now I'm trying to be in the middle more. And not too excessive this way, and not too excessive that way. If you have a guitar, and you're tuning a guitar, if the string is too tight, it's, it's sharp, and if it's too loose, it's flat. The idea is to have it just right. Meditation allows us to put our life in the middle. And it's just right. Do you think you can go right in the middle without having gone some people can. I, it wasn't my experience, but but some people can. We're all different. We all have different karma. You know, we all have different skills, and so some people can. I, I wish I could have. It would have saved me a, a lot of stuff. It was an interesting journey, I must say. Uh, but it uh, it only led me to simply, you know, be here now, be here now. as Ram Dass might say. <laughs> What is the middle? It's the best place to be and the hardest place to get to. <laughs> is that the same as equanimity? That's the same as equanimity. <laughs> Choiceless awareness, no preferences.
right in the middle. So acceptance? Profound acceptance of the way things are. Without wanting them to be any different. That's the middle. And it's ironic that this is called the middle path. Okay, any questions? Did, did the story, did you follow the story? The little journey of the meditation and the reading. I hope the reading and the story combined allowed you to have the sort of intellectual model now of what meditation is and what it's not as well. Good. Okay. Good, good. So I think it's we're at our halfway point. Why don't we take you know a, a, a break, five ten minutes, and just and then when we come back, we'll practice some concentration exercises. We'll start the journey, and then eventually, after practicing concentration for a few weeks, a few months, or a few years, then it can evolve into simply mindfulness. Your mind is full of the present moment. So you have to stop to start with concentration. Mm, not no. After a while, you can simply start in mindfulness and end in mindfulness. No, I mean if you're a beginning meditator. No, actually, it's it's said it's said, uh, and the Buddhist texts say this that that some monks have achieved nirvana by just doing mindfulness, and That's other right. monks and other monks have achieved nirvana by just doing concentration. But the most revered of all the monks is the monk that does both concentration and mindfulness. And why would that be the case? Concentration gives you extrasensory perception. Concentration is said to allow you to hear things and see things and also see into the future and see into the past. If you concentrate enough and deep enough, and a lot of the yogis in India used to do that. So what would be the benefit of that? If you are a Buddha and could look at the person in front of you and see where they came from and see into the future, you could be the best teacher they've ever had. If you could read their mind, you would be the best teacher they'd ever have. So it, if you're a Buddhist teacher or a monk, being able to have those extrasensory things would be a benefit. If you're just a regular person doing concentration and you get some of those extrasensory perceptions, you may be tempted to use them not for good, but for your own benefit. You may decide to go into palm reading or something and charge high fees, you know. And so the Buddha warned the monks, you know, about those gifts that come with concentration. So... Concentration is what the Buddha did first, and then he did mindfulness. And so we always look at the Buddha as the best example. So that's, that's what we want to do, theoretically. But you don't have to. You can just sidestep concentration and go right into mindfulness. Okay. Does it sound like peace is coming your way? <laughs> Are we getting closer now? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, that's it. That was class three, part one of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. In the talk, I referred to a book 
and Bamboo Breathing. Well, that book is called Zen Training, Methods and Philosophy. It's been republished by Shambhala Classics, and it's written by Katsuki Cicada. I think I'm pronouncing that right. You can find it on Amazon.com. Zen Training, Methods, and Philosophy, published by Shambhala Classics. Well, uh, if you'd like to hear more podcasts, if you'd like to uh, hear some interviews I've done, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism and the 2007 Buddhist calendar, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Sometimes I get behind, but I'll get back to you just as soon as I can. Well, I'll be posting the next uh, class soon. Uh, class number three, part two, uh, should have it up in the next couple of days. So until then, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.